This podcast is sponsored by the IAFF Financial Corporation. Working with Nationwide since 2003, the IAFF Financial Corporation provides IAFF members with access to deferred compensation plans, Roth 457s, post-employment health plans, and health savings accounts through the Frontline Program. With over $12 billion in assets under management, this program gives our brothers and sisters choices in their financial health. Visit IAFF-FC.com for more information. All right, Doug, we are back with another episode of the IAFF podcast, episode number four of our four-part series on Cancer Awareness Month. We teamed up with the Firefighter Cancer Support Network. We've talked about uh, labor management relationships in the fire service. And we we talked about our teammate in all of this, the Firefighter Cancer Support Network. We've had a, a really good couple of weeks here. And today we're going to get to what, what I refer to and uh, others refer to out there as the science of cancer. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are out there, you know, common occupational cancers, best decontamination efforts, things, things of that nature. And we have two very special guests with us today. First off is uh, Dr. Rivera, a board-certified occupational and environmental medicine doctor and faculty at John Hopkins School of Public Health. Up there, she leads the Occupational and Environmental Medicine Residency Program, then the Education and Research Center for Occupational Safety and Health. Very talented doctor. Glad to have her here today. Also joining us today from the IFF is Raquel Siegel, IFF Occupational Health Specialist, who's done a tremendous job in our health and safety department doing the best every day to keep our members safe. Dr. Rivera, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you guys. Before we get started, I just want to note that the views I express are my own and don't represent uh, the opinion of my employer. So I, we appreciate that, Dr. Rivera, and we appreciate you being here as well. Raquel, do you want to take a minute to kind of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, my name is Raquel Siegel, and I'm the Occupational Health Specialist, and I've been in the Health and Safety Department at the IFF for uh, the last four years, actually. Um, and the work that I do here is a lot of assisting departments with uh, their requests on air quality, mold reports, a lot of chemical exposures and decon efforts. And I've also had the opportunity to manage various research projects for the IFF as well when it uh, comes to flame retardants, PFAS, cell tower exposures. And more recently, I've had the opportunity to work with the amazing team from the IFF and from the Firefighter Cancer Support Network to put together this Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. Raquel, thanks for that. Thanks for all the work that, that you've done and that our, our staff have done to make Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month such a success for all of our members out there in the field. Uh, Dr. Rivera, I want to ask you, let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell us, just for our listeners, can you give us a definition and tell us what cancer exactly is? I think that's a great question. I think it's important that we have um, the same starting point. When we think of cancer, it's one word that we use to describe a lot of different diseases, but it refers to a pathologic process. Basically, our cells lose their ability to self-regulate. And essentially, when something goes wrong in a cell, 
what should happen is that if the cell is malfunctioning, it has a mechanism that it basically uh, tells itself that it needs to, uh, to kill itself off. And we call that apoptosis. That's the fancy term we use for that. Um, in cancerous cells, they, they lose their ability to do that. And, and then what you end up with is replication of cells that um, are not functioning properly. And those cells will then sort of start to, to take over. And so when we think of cancer, what leads us to that process may look slightly different in different cells in the body. But at the end of the day, we're really talking about sort of a mechanism and not necessarily a specific disease that can be applied to, to every single um, body system. So cancer really is the process not so much the end disease. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, it's really the final common pathway where cells lose their ability to self-regulate. So they can no longer stop replicating even if they're not functioning properly. So the bad cells replicate as faster, faster than the good cells? Not necessarily faster, but they, they're not able to to stop replicating. So then they're malfunctioning and then they, they spread and take over so that essentially, you know, you, you end up with an inability of that organ to be able to do what it's supposed to do. How does that link, link to firefighters and link to our occupation? We understand what cancer is now, but how does it link to firefighters specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was in medical school, I remember there was, uh, we used to have to have these like small groups, we called them practice of medicine breakout groups. And there was a faculty member there that would say, you know, in the beginning, you were born, and you were given, you know, a set of genes, if you will, right? And those are the things that we can't control, right? But as you grew up, you were exposed to different things in your environment. And the interplay between your genetic material and the things that you're exposed to has the opportunity, if you will, to lead to the development of, you know, disease processes in some cases, or to the lack of, you know, those disease processes. So, you know, you could, you know, develop uh, you could have very healthy outcomes or you could have sort of unhealthy outcomes, if you will. And so when you put somebody in an environment where they're exposed to known um, cancer-causing chemicals or agents or, you know, what, different people may have different terms, um, but at the end of the day, these things that are in our environment that can contribute to the development of cancer then you you increase the risk that that individual will develop that cancer. And some of us may be more likely to develop certain cancers because of the genetic material we're born with. With firefighters' genetic makeup, as they're walking into the toxic situations that they walk into, that obviously creates the, the perfect storm to generate cancer, if I'm, if I'm correct here. I want to get into the science that supports all of that. What kind of research reports are out there, previous studies and everything that, that is really making that link 
with the genetic makeup and the toxic environments that are that are causing the increased rates of cancer. Yeah, so a shift away from the genetic uh, sort of makeup because I think you know we can't control who where we're born or who who we're born what family we're born into and all that stuff and 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 um I don't want to kind of isolate firefighters as sort of you know being different from from everyone else we're all human um but I think what makes firefighters unique is that you know they're going into these situations where they're being when they're where they're being exposed to known cancer causing chemicals and so that's what increases their likelihood that, you know, one of these switches in the cells that contributes to that cell losing the ability to kill itself off if it start if it starts malfunctioning will be sort of turned off. Or uh, in some cases, some of these switch, I'll call them switches, will will turn on and it can promote the ability of that cell to, to do things that end up contributing to the development of cancer. So back to your question about what, what science is out there um, to support it. Well, there have been a couple of um, major studies that have really contributed to a better understanding of the increased risk of cancer among firefighters as compared to the general population. And um, I think one of the sentinel studies is um, the Lamaster's meta-analysis. So basically, researchers looked at a lot of different small studies that on their own individually maybe weren't necessarily providing the, the information because they didn't sample enough people in the study. And they pulled all that information together and they analyzed that data. And they were able to show that there there is a risk um, for for firefighters to develop certain cancers more so than would be expected when you compare them to um, to other folks who are not firefighters. Now I know there's the studies that are out there and the great work that you're doing, and I want to translate that over into the work that the IFF is doing. Our health and safety department is phenomenal when it comes to responding to our members' needs. Everybody in that division is top-notch, doing the best they can every day. And that's why I want to bring in Raquel to talk about the, the IFF's role in really taking these reports, analyzing them, and some of the things that we're working on and translating them into best practices for our members out in the field. Yeah, absolutely. So the IFF is involved in a number of research studies in varying capacities, so sometimes the IFF is actually approached about specific topics that a researcher is already working on, and these topics uh, will benefit the IFF members. So we do get involved sometimes uh, through funding or through advisory positions where we can assist with uh, project development and progress as they start to really develop these studies that can actually benefit us. So an example of this is the IFF, along with the Ottawa Professional Firefighters Association and a few other groups are working with the University of Ottawa on a dermal wipe study that is looking at polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, so PAHs, and they're looking at those levels on uh, firefighters after firefighting activities. And they're looking at uh, different dermal wipes to determine the if they're actually removing the contaminants from gear, from skin, and all 
uh, those different components. So that research is nearing completion and that will be a really great resource, especially for decon efforts when that does come out. Another way the IFF is involved in research is when we seek out um, specific projects based on topics that are important to our members, or if a convention resolution directs us to complete a specific research project. So in these situations, the IFF will actually go out and we will find researchers who are experts in those fields, and we will actually help to create the projects, design them, help with the funding or grant applications, and get those projects started and completed. So two of those studies that the IFF has uh, really put a lot of effort into, and they're both completed at this point, are our flame retardant dust studies. So we did one in the U.S. and one in Canada. The U.S. one was completed in 2017, and the Canadian dust study was completed in 2019. So they're still fairly recent studies. And both of those studies included 25 stations from each country and they evaluated flame retardants found in the dust as uh, departments would vacuum their stations. And they were actually able to identify that the dust in fire stations was higher than residential homes. So this is showing that we are bringing flame retardants back from the fire ground. And this is super important information for us to have as we really approach a lot of our decon efforts. So Raquel, you guys are working on a lot. If our members want to get access to these studies so they can learn more, how do they do that? So the best way to get this is to actually reach out through your DVP and they'll contact the health and safety department and we can work with you to get these studies. I'm actually not done. We do have a few more research projects that we're working on that I think will be a big interest to our listeners. Yeah, go ahead. So the big research projects we're working on right now are PFAS, our uh, per and polyfluoroalkali substances. So um, one of our studies that has actually, it's kind of pulled from the U.S. and Canadian dust studies is we took the same dust from those and we had researchers reanalyze it for PFAS. And the research is actually completed and that too is published. And the research identified that some PFAS chemicals are higher in fire stations than in residential homes, but it is difficult to identify where the PFAS is coming from. So they did note that there needs to be better understanding of what sources are contributing to PFAS levels in dust and to understand if PFAS in dust is a main exposure route. So the IFF is very interested in this, and we do think that there is potential further research opportunities that we can get involved in to really better understand the sources and the main exposure routes. But there are two other PFAS studies we are currently still working on that are not completed just yet. One is our PFAS blood study, which is looking at the amount of PFAS within structural firefighters' blood to determine if it's greater than the general population, and then we do have our PFAS in gear study where researchers are analyzing uh, four brand new sets of gear for volatile and non-volatile PFAS. So again, those last two PFAS studies are not completed just yet, but we're hoping they'll be done soon and will provide us a better understanding of really what is going on with this chemical and what are the exposures for firefighters. And then a new research that is not 
either of those two, but it's actually our cell tower research project is one that was a convention resolution. And so this one we are working on with our researchers and they are going to evaluate the RF frequencies of cell towers on fire stations and not on fire stations. And then they'll be able to evaluate some of the health risks by identifying um, personal exposures and health endpoints. So that was a ton of research that we're working on, but we're really excited about all of it to really gain a better understanding of firefighter exposures, how these exposures are linked to occupational cancer and other diseases. And we're just can't wait for it to all be finished so we can get a better understanding. Raquel, thank you. I, I think that that segment there is very powerful. I think it's it, it goes to show the lengths the IFF is going to keep its members safe. I think if you were to have the general discussions out in the street, that a lot of firefighters out there don't know that, that their union is doing this for them. And I think it's a tremendous testament to you and the health and safety department for the work that you're doing. I know you guys are super busy down there and, and you're doing great work. I think, Mark, too, it really shows the IFF is leading the way in these things, um, just like we have on almost every health and safety initiative around since I've been a firefighter for 20-something years and beyond that. Um, really, you know, Raquel, you guys are doing a tremendous job identifying the things that need studying and getting the data that then help drive the decisions that we can make in the, in the field. I mean, so thank you for all of that. Yeah, well, we definitely have a ton of amazing researchers across the country at different universities, different organizations that are really leading the charge. And, you know, we just, you know, we can reach out to them and get the information and work with them at any time. But it's really they're doing that heavy lift. And we're so grateful to have those relationships and partnerships with all of them. One thing I did want to circle back on is something you did mention was best decontamination efforts. Are there certain recommendations you have out there in, in regards to what are some of the best ways to decontaminate after a toxic event, a fire, hazmat incident, and still be safe? Absolutely. So this is something that we really try to put a big focus on in the Cancer Awareness Month is there are so many different ways that you can, you know, limit your exposures. We can't 100% remove it all, but anything that you can do to help limit and protect yourself on the job is critical to reducing your risk of developing occupational cancer. So um, some of the big areas that we focus on at the IFF is obviously on-scene growth decontamination is one of the easiest things that you guys can do to really remove some of these carcinogens and uh, combustion byproducts from your gear following a fire. And you know, research has showed that wet decon is the most effective at removing as much contaminants as possible, but really any decon is going to be beneficial because you want to start to get the debris from your gear and start to clean yourself. And then obviously once it's off your gear, we recommend using wet wipes or the water to clean your skin on scene. And, you know, what is becoming more common, I guess, is wearing your SCBA through overhaul, but we also want you to wear it through gross decontamination because you have to think as you're cleaning your gear, as you're brushing it off or rubbing it off, these uh, particulates can become airborne. And you know this is something that's a little bit newer, but wearing your SCBA through decontamination is almost just as critical as wearing it through you know, overhaul and um, 
not the same as virus suppression, obviously, but because these are still airborne. So it's definitely wearing your SCBA through both overhaul and gross decon and performing gross decon on scene. And then obviously once it's cleaned, we don't want you to take the gear into the cab. So that introduces a whole nother program, I guess, is the clean cab concept. And so this one is, you know, once your gear is, is cleaned or decontaminated on scene, we then want you to put it in a bag and then place it in an outside compartment. We don't want the gear to then be brought into the cab, which you're then contaminating the cab and these particulates are going to be constantly moving around and, you know, it just continues your exposure to them. So the clean cab concept is definitely something that we're pushing a little bit more. And there's actually a fact sheet on the Cancer Awareness Month website that really talks about the whole concept in general and gives you a little bit more information on how to actually apply it to your department. Another thing is once you are now back at the station, we uh, highly recommend the rule of shower within an hour. So obviously when you're performing your on-scene gross decon, you are going to be using water to clean your gear, to wipe your skin, to do all of that, but it's not removing everything. So once you get back to the station, you want to shower and you want to remove as much of the contaminants from your skin as possible. So that is something that we're really pushing. Those are kind of your decon aspects, but when it comes to prevention, we also are pushing diesel exhaust extractors. I can't tell you how many departments I've spoken to where they say, oh, my diesel exhaust extractor is broken, or, oh, we forget to use it, or we just don't use it. And this is such a concerning thing to me because diesel smoke is a known carcinogen. And this is something that's so easy. You connect that extractor and you're minimizing your exposures drastically from not having diesel smoke or diesel exhaust on the bay floor. So those are sort of your prevention efforts and your decon efforts that are really the ones that we're pushing, but there are so many more uh, resources on the website that can really assist with all of these. Thank you, Raquel. I wanted to switch over to Dr. Rivera and talk about uh, cancer screenings and the concerns that come with the screenings. I know there's lots of talk out there. When we get into this kind of subject, there is a lots of times you see it break off into different paths where people have different ideas that think they work. You know, in this case, we have things like saunas, cancer sniffing dogs, things of that nature. Dr. Rivera, take us through that and how, what, what can we depend on? What can't we depend on? Where's the science or lack of science for that part? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't know if you've heard of the, the idiom separating the wheat from the chaff. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there, but um, not all of it is going to be equally helpful to our firefighting community or for, for, for any of our communities, really, for that matter. We uh, spend a lot of time thinking through risk and benefit of any test as a medical uh, professional. You learn really early on that any test that you do is not 100% reliable right? So um, there's, there's always going to be a risk with um, ordering a test on a, on a patient. And so researchers have spent decades studying ways to screen for any number of diseases. I mean, look at the example of um, lung cancer. 
okay? Um, we used to think that chest x-rays could maybe detect lung cancer masses early enough to treat them before the cancer spread, but we don't use chest x-rays, right, to, to screen people for, for lung cancer. It took a long time before we could determine um, an appropriate uh, screening test. And part of what played into, you know, why we don't use chest x-rays to, to screen people for, for lung cancer was because we realized that we were learning that some of these people had the disease earlier, but um, there weren't any necessarily any treatments that could change the outcome. So, so it wasn't really all that valuable to do, to do that test as a screening test because it wasn't really affecting the outcome. But, you know, thankfully, um, we figured out that low-dose CT, if used for certain groups of people, that could be helpful in detecting lung cancer early enough where it would make a difference. So, so I think that when we think about screening, while it's attractive to, and we all want to know, right? Uh, well, most of us want to know if we have something, we want to know early enough so that we can keep it from, you know, becoming something worse and hopefully, you know, prolong life and, and mitigate the risk of disability that comes from disease. Not all of these tests that are out there are, are necessarily studied or approved to, to do what we hope that they will do. So your question about cancer sniffing dogs, there is some proof of principle, if you will. So there is some research that um, demonstrates that the dogs are smelling something and, and, you know, maybe under certain conditions, the dogs can be trained to detect scent evidence of various cancers. That doesn't mean that the technique can be used in a reliable way as a screening test in clinical practice or that the technique can protect or improve the health of firefighters. So, you know, as we consider whether or not we want to promote a test or, or, or have a test done, and this isn't anything to say, you know, that it's a bad test or anything like that. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of tests that we do <laughs> because we're curious about what the result is going to be, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be marketed as a as a test that your doctor would necessarily order because there are medical risks with that and there are, you know, potentially legal risks with that. From a legal perspective, just as an example, that technique is, to my knowledge, you know, not necessarily approved by the FDA. So, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, if I, if I were to order that on a, on a patient who was requesting it and it came back positive, you know, just as an example, then where do I go from there with that information, right? You can imagine the anxiety that could come from getting a positive result, thinking that you might have a cancer, but you're not really sure where the cancer is or what it means. And then that leads to a lot more testing. And, and like I started off saying, you know, tests have risks too. And sometimes tests can lead to procedures and these procedures can also have risks. So we want to keep people as safe as possible. Um, you know, we always kind of try to do no harm. And I know that can be frustrating sometimes because science is a process and it takes time. But I think it's important to be really careful about the types of tests that we are using 
and what we hope to gain from using those tests, the knowledge that we're hoping to gain, and whether or not it can answer the questions and address the concerns that we are trying to, you know, address. So I'm sitting here just trying to wrap my head around the fact that x-rays aren't used to detect lung cancer. I I didn't, I didn't even know that. That's really interesting that you you're using other techniques that have gone beyond that. Um, And I think it speaks to the point that there are experts out there. There are oncologists, there are general practitioners, there are doctors who specialize in these things that know what the proper thing to do is. This isn't something that you can diagnose or even close to diagnosing at the firehouse table because you read a pamphlet one time and you think you know it. I I think if if we've learned nothing else from all of this, I think that's something that I'm going to take with me is that it's really important to rely on experts like you, Dr. Rivera, to figure out what the tests are and not, this isn't a do it yourself, do it at home kind of thing, right? Yes. And I will add to that, that I think it's important to have open conversations and engage with your healthcare professional, whether, you know, your doctor or, you know, whoever you're seeing for your, for your primary care, um, let them know, you know, that this is something, put this on their radar, let them know, Hey, I'm a firefighter and I, I wear my, my turnout gear. I do everything I can to decontaminate. I'm following everything I can, you know, I'm exercising, I don't smoke, but I'm still being exposed to these cancer-causing chemicals. And, you know, I, I, w- I just want to put that on your radar and, and make sure that I'm up to date with all of my appropriate cancer screenings for my age and my gender and, you know, my family history, you know, because we have to consider, you know, you know, maybe you may be at a slightly higher risk because somebody in your family had cancer and, and things like that. So, so engaging in those conversations so that you're not out there, you know, on your own trying to figure this out because it's complicated. And, um, you know, we're all, we're all in this together, working as a team, trying to make sure that, that folks are getting the appropriate screening tests and that they have the best information available so that, you know, they're, li- they're living long and healthy lives. All right, Raquel, Dr. Rivera, this brings us to our closing thoughts portion of the, the podcast. And I'll start with you, Raquel. What are some final thoughts that you have on, on the work that you're doing, the benefits that you're providing to members, and Cancer Awareness Month, the whole program, and cancer and fire service down the road? What are your thoughts? So I think the thing to remember is research is constantly coming out and we're constantly getting new information. And the IFF is trying to stay on top of all this and make sure we can provide as much information, as timely information as possible to our members. Other than that, I mean, the IFF is a resource for for all of your questions and concerns. We are here to help. We are here to dive down and find the answers for questions that you all want the answers to. So I highly recommend that you go through your local presence, you go through your DVPs, they reach out to the health and safety department, and we can try our best to find the answers to these questions. And if we don't have them, then we'll reach out to whoever the subject matter experts are, or we can Think about ways to start conducting our own research projects to find those answers. 
So I just want to make sure that our members know that we are here and we want to assist you guys in any way possible. Dr. Rivera, if there was one thing, one salient point you could leave with our firefighters, our members on this podcast, as it relates to firefighters and cancer, what would that be as we close out? So at the end of the day, and I don't want to make light of this, you know, no one gets out alive. All right. We are all born and we're here for a certain period of time. And inevitably, eventually, we're going to meet our maker, if you will. Uh, I don't want anyone to walk away from this podcast and think, oh my gosh, I'm a firefighter. I'm going to get cancer because that is certainly not the point that I hope that folks take away from this. I think the biggest point is knowing that you are at slightly higher risk and that there are steps that you can take to engage with your healthcare team to make sure that you're doing everything you can to control the things that you can control in this process. So, you know, making sure that you're staying active, that you're not gaining extra weight, that you're not smoking or chewing tobacco and or excessively drinking, doing everything you can. You're living a, a clean, healthy life, right? And you're taking all these steps so that you reduce those risks that um, come from the profession that you have. I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that, you know, there's some kind of inevitability or anything like that because because there's not. And, and I think that that's the biggest takeaway. So if you think about the population of the U.S., all of us together, right, the number one killer of, of Americans, if you will, is cardiovascular disease. And the number two killer is cancer. But if you look at subpopulations, which sometimes researchers do to try to identify if different people are at different risk levels, there are some populations that have higher risks of developing cancer. So I want people to kind of put this in context. Don't, you know, focus in on, oh my gosh, I'm a firefighter, I'm going to get cancer, because that's not, that's not what you should be taking away from this. It should be, oh, you know what, I'm being exposed to some nasty stuff potentially at work, but there are steps I can take so that I reduce any risk that can come to me from those exposures. And also, you know, be aware that the IFF is a resource to you and there are steps that you can take to be more, even more informed. Thank you, Dr. Rivera. Thank you, Raquel. I want to express my sincere gratitude for the two of you to come join us today on this episode. I'm still trying to, yeah, understand a lot of, of the discussion today. And it's it's deep. It is very informative. It's far more than any other firefighter out there would think that's being done for them in the field. Uh, you sit in the firehouse and and you're like, yeah, okay, we'll keep our helmet clean. We'll keep our gear clean. But I don't really think, I don't think they understand the work that's being done for them, uh, you know, at, at these facilities, at the IFF, with all these experts out there doing the studies and, and doing the tests out there. It's, there is a tremendous effort to really reduce cancer exposure in the fire service and everybody's doing their part. And I commend everybody for it. Thank you for today. Yeah. Thanks guys. I, I think, the best way to end the last podcast on the cancer awareness month is what Dr. Rivera said that there is hope. This isn't, it's not a predetermined outcome that firefighters are going to get cancer, that doing the right things, taking the right precautions. 
living clean, taking care of your gear, taking care of yourself, all of those things help you reduce your chances. You, just because you're a firefighter doesn't mean you're getting cancer. You are in control. And if we've learned one thing, hopefully throughout this month, that's it. So to end there was very poignant, Dr. Rivera. Thank you for that. And thanks for spending your time with us this afternoon, Raquel. I mean, this, this was great. Both of you coming on and kind of giving us the data that firefighters need to know what's going on and to know, like Mark said, that their union is out there looking out for them. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, guys. It was it was great. And, you know, if there's one other big takeaway is that January is Cancer Awareness Month, but we want this to be all year round that we're thinking about this. And these resources will remain on the website all year round. And we're going to continue to do this every single January. Well, we, we appreciate you coming in. You know, Doug, as we close out the show, I wanted to take a minute here. You know, the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a lot of work on this Cancer Awareness Month. I know IFF Communications, Health and Safety, everybody's put a ton of work into this. And I think we're at, in our fire service careers, both of us have been doing this now 25 years or more. I think we are, are witnessing history. I think we're at that turning point to where when we came on the job, you know, I remember when I first came on, I was a volunteer outside New York City, and they actually still had the, the rubber boots that you pull up and you wear. And then, you know, we've gradually gone to the point to where the, the dirty helmet and the dirty gear is not is not really acceptable anymore. And, and there's a lot more focus just in our generation of making sure your gear is clean and making sure you're taking the steps necessary to to protect yourself. Because I'll tell you what, we get all the emails from the line of duty deaths, uh, occupational cancer, brain cancer, kidney cancer. It, it seems like they're coming in day after day. And a lot of times, some of these some of these are kids that have like six or seven years on the job, and in other cases, they're people that are seasoned. And in many cases, there's people that are just firefighters that are two years into retirement. And we want to be able to work that time and dedicate our careers to protecting our communities. But there comes a time where we want to be able to enjoy ourselves in our retirement and making sure that we are taking care of ourselves, taking the steps necessary to prevent cancer is going to give you a lot more time on the back end. So I know I'm rambling, but I just think it's really important. And I commend everybody for all the work that was done on IFF Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah, I think that's a great way to close, Mark. I think when we came on, it was a different job um, than it is now because we know more because of the research, because of the work. And I think just as it changed for the type of turnouts that the generation before us used, they went from dungarees and tin helmets to full-blown turnout gear and the helmets that we use now, this is that quantum change where it's cancer and cancer awareness that we're starting to prevent and protect firefighters from. So this has been, I think, a really informative month. I appreciate, you know, you in, in hosting these podcasts with me. I appreciate all of our guests coming on, all the work that the IFF has done. Um, I think members need to know the resources are out there at IAFF.org and anything they need, our staff, our health and safety folks are there and ready to answer the questions. And I want to throw one final shout out to two very important people that helped us on all of this. Uh, Jane Bloom, Director of Communications at IFF and Megan Buabib, Jane's right hand. 
uh, their IFF communications, really putting together the website, uh, helping shepherd everything along the infographics that you see on social media, all the communications efforts. Kudos to them on a job well done. Everybody else at IFF. I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for listening. Hope you've enjoyed Cancer Awareness Month and uh, everybody be safe out there. Take your precautions, be safe and uh, enjoy your careers. Thank you.